Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. Is this the year you finally build a better business? Well, we can help. When you join Entree Architect membership, you'll receive an invitation to a new live training webinar every month. It's a one-hour masterclass each month to help you focus on your business and to show you how you might do it better. And the Entree Architect Expert Training Webinar Archive has dozens of these 60-minute training videos ready for you to download and view at your own convenience. And with your membership, you'll gain free access to over $2,000 worth of resources, digital courses, templates, checklists, everything that you need to run a better business. Monthly training, full access to all our business resources, and don't forget our private member forum powered by Slack. Come build a better business with hundreds of your fellow entrepreneur architects and me at Entree Architect membership. Enroll now free for 30 days at EntreeArchitect.com. My name is Mark R. LePage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. This is episode 252. This week, I'm with Ian Motley of Blue Turtle Consulting, and we're talking about how to develop an architecture fee proposal that converts. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors. FreshBooks, the cloud-based accounting software that makes running your small firm easy, fast, and secure. Spend less time on accounting and more time doing the work that you love. And RCAT, 
the online resource delivering quality building material information, CAD details, BIM, specification, and so much more. Find what you need fast at rcat.com. Ian Motley, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's good to have you here. Uh, let me tell our listeners a little bit about you. Ian is the founder of Blue Turtle Consulting. You may recognize that name. We hear Blue Turtle all the time in the Entree Architect community. Uh, we have a Facebook group that's super uh, interactive and active, and Blue Turtle pops up all the time. And so I didn't really know what Blue Turtle was, actually, until you contacted me. And I put two and two together and realized that Ian Motley is Blue Turtle. And so uh, I'm happy to have you here because I'm, I'm excited to learn more about what you're doing uh, and talk about, uh, you know, some of the things that you're doing over there. And so um, it's exciting to, to have you here. So he also sp- sort of divides his time between London and Sydney and San Francisco here in the U.S. Um, uh, with a Bachelor of Science degree in building from the Nottingham uh, Trent University in the U.K. Ian is also... An accomplished writer, he's done a bunch of series, you know, a bunch of ebooks for architects. Uh, prior to starting Blue Turtle, Ian was uh, an associate partner with Foster and Partners in London, where he was responsible for some of Foster's most pre- prestigious work all throughout the world. Um, and between two, uh, 1998 and 2006, Ian worked for a general contractor managing uh, the construction of many new projects throughout the United States. And in 2006, he was approached by a Houston-based firm to start up a residential construction company in Honduras, where he spent six months building a crew of 16 local tradespeople to construct vacation homes for U.S. clients. Um, So, Ian, pretty varied life and pretty varied experience. And and now you're you're doing some online work. And so I'm super excited to have you here and uh, have this conversation. But before we get into our conversation, I want to learn more about you. Whenever I bring on a guest here, I want to sort of invite you to share your origin story, go back to where you discovered architecture and construction and what inspired you to sort of follow that path. Tell us that story to where you are today. Thank you very much, Mark. Okay, so look, approximately 20 odd years ago now, I graduated with a, a building science and project management degree. And at that time, at the end of my graduation, I actually applied for an internship in the United States. And to my surprise, I was actually accepted. So I came over to the States and I started managing construction um, loans for perhaps three of America's largest financial institutes, including Wells Fargo Bank, GE Capital, Bank of America. Did that for about 18 months. Then they promoted me to go manage construction projects uh, for some other very famous clients, such as Marriott Hotels. Uh, Kikaman, the company that make the soy sauce that goes on a lot of our Asian food, uh, the University of Texas Medical Branch, um, the Houston Airport System. So look, I got to work on some very uh, large, prestigious projects and managing it from a construction point of view to make sure that it's achieved on time and to budget. Okay, I then went to Honduras, started a small residential firm because I wanted to be self-employed. Uh, it was an interesting six months, to say the least. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I figured that when it was only six months. Yeah. <laughs> and that you're uh, not still there. I'm not there. <laughs> it, it was an amazing experience. I learned a huge amount. It was back to basics. It was very much me, 16 guys, digging holes, pouring concrete and building these homes. Uh, but then I got offered a job to go back to London. I'm originally from the UK. 
um, and go and work for arguably one of the world's most famous architectural firms. It's a firm called Foster and Partners. It's run by a very famous architect called Norman Foster. He's been awarded the world's most admired architect award at least nine times. So it's an extremely prestigious firm. And look, I don't have any design or formal design training or skills. So the big question was, why would you want to hire me? And what was happening at that firm at that time was they were starting up a department to write the fee proposals and manage uh, the contractual side of the work. And I was part of a team of four or five people who would do that job and sort of police the fees and proposals process, if you'd like. And to be honest, I think that's really where my interest in architecture developed, because as a general contractor, as a builder, you're always looking for how can you add value to the project that you're going to build for somebody. So, for example, there's many people that build the project and you don't get to design it. It's already specified. It's already said. So the big question becomes, why would somebody choose you over some other general contractor? And I noticed that when I went to work for an architectural firm, first of all, very few people had any negotiation training. Very few people had any fee proposal experience. But a lot of people were writing proposals for some very big, prestigious projects without the training. And also, when it came to that value aspect of how do you add value, um, the firm relied heavily on its branding and perhaps very little else. Um, So over my time working there, we got involved in a lot of projects and you know, despite what area of the industry and there's always going to be a lot of competition. So we didn't just get handed projects like a lot of people thought. You're always going to be competing with the Zaha Hadids, the Richard Rogers and and so forth. Um, So we had to try and work out how we could demonstrate value, bring a bit of an edge to the proposal. Um, I got to meet with many, many gifted, talented architects. I got a lot of time to sit down and look at how they went about the proposal process. And one of those architects actually... Um, was the catalyst behind Blue Turtle Consulting. She actually said, what you do is not trained during architectural, formal architectural training. If you could package that, there are a whole host of small to medium-sized firms that can't afford to hire project managers directly but could really appreciate the knowledge um, and learning from your experience. So that's how it started. Um, That architect eventually went on to become my business partner and my wife. Um, and that was approximately eight years ago and we've been running blue turtle for eight, maybe nine, coming up nine years now. So that's, that's where the whole interest in the industry began. where did the name come from? Interesting. So, um, there is a creature called a leatherback turtle and, uh, it's been around for millions of years. It's evolved to adapt, uh, to its environment with each change in the Earth's uh, cycle. And it can also swim, it can also go on land, it can dive to the depths of a nuclear submarine. So it's a very, very adaptable creature. And and that's what we really thought we were doing. We were taking a very traditional industry and trying to bring it up to speed with this modern environment that we're now all competing in. So that's where the turtle portion came from. The blue part simply represents the um, the, the characteristics that we would like as a firm, it's the stability, it's the confidence, the calmness. Uh, so that's where the blue part comes from. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Uh, it's easy to remember and, uh, yeah, it sounds good. Um, to sort of the marketing brain in me says, Hey, that's a cool name. My, my architecture firm's name is five cat studio. Yeah. So just sort of a, just a memorable name. 
then there's, exactly. lot, there's a lot of story to that too, but we're not going to, we're not going to go into my story. Um, so, so blue turtle, so what, what is blue turtle and what do you guys do? So we primarily started out as a consulting firm and we would sit down with architects, go through their current fee proposal, tell them why, uh, or they would tell us what they were achieving and we would tell them how to improve upon it. And look, it all comes down to one simple thing. And that is that 95% of the decisions uh, that people make are based on emotions. So whether your client accepts your proposal or not, is largely based on how they feel about your proposal. And traditionally in our industry, we ignored the sort of emotional side of things and we just focused on the black and white issues. You know, what are we going to do? How long is it going to take? How much is it going to cost? Uh, and when there was, a, there was a period 20, 30 years ago when that was very effective, but nowadays we're seeing a huge increase in competition because it's now a, a, a global market. We're also seeing that technology is allowing a lot of people who don't have the training or the skill set to start designing because technology has made it feasible for everyone. Um, and we're also seeing the role of the architect diminish. We're seeing uh, people like myself or project managers come in and take in uh, or take on the management side of something that architects used to do. So look, it's become a really competitive industry and most architects fee proposals haven't caught up with the industry yet so that's what we're doing we're focusing on the emotional side and how to make it a more attractive proposal so what are what are a few things our our community are all small firm owners and uh sole practitioners you know we're we're at the the bot i don't i don't mean bottom as in in terms of the the lowliest but the bottom in terms of size that we are from mm-hmm. from firms of one hundreds of them thousands of them possibly uh, and and very very small firms, so firms under ten. So what can that? And that's who you're talking about, right? Yeah. I mean, and yeah. and uh, so what can we do? What can we do to improve our fee proposals? Well, look, like like most things in life, the first step is to really ascertain: Do you have a problem or not? Are you currently satisfied with the results you're achieving? Um, for the work that you're putting in. So is it getting you your goal? If it's not, and you've realized that there is a problem, then the second step is to understand that um, whether your client says yes or no to your proposal has more to do with how you actually frame your proposal than the actual fee you're charging. Before we we get into that, because I want to get into that, I want to just go back to step one. Because you said whether you're happy with what your results are now. And I think being super involved in our community and and hearing and listening to, to what our members are saying, I suspect that many of us don't know what that means. You know, as, as long as they get their job and the bills are paid, maybe they're happy and, and the result is there, but is really, is that really enough? You know, in terms, because, you know, I'm always talking about building a profitable firm. You have to, yeah, you have yeah. to build a firm that's going to earn 20% profit or more. It's not just about, you know, paying the next bill that comes in or getting the next job that, you know, rings on the phone. It's about building a business. And so in terms of whether you're happy with the results that you achieve, do you have any ideas or any thoughts on how they might analyze whether it really is? enough or not with what they're doing or whether they should look beyond what they're doing now? Uh, it's an interesting question. Um, typically, 
it's a starting point for us. Uh, first of all, if you are happy, you know, that's great. Why are we talking? Because people usually don't come to us if they're satisfied with the results. Most people come to us because they're not satisfied. The next step is, well, why aren't you satisfied? So usually there can be a number of areas. For example, A, they might not have enough clients, so they need a higher conversion rate. B, the clients they have might not be paying them as much money as they would like for the time it takes to complete the work. So they might want to increase their fee levels. Um, or C, they might want to try and break into a different market. So um, maybe they're currently in residential, they'd like to try and move into commercial or, or vice versa. Um, and so that's what we try and do is establish, well, what are your goals? What would we like to achieve here? And that, that's sort of the second step. And look, if you don't know if you're happy or not, well, I think the, the step would be to listen to what we perhaps have to say yeah. and see what, see what you think about it. Uh, and maybe you might find that actually with just a few minor changes to what you're currently doing, you could turn things around um, for yourself considerably. Yeah, so, that's, and that's exactly why I brought it up. Because I think... Oh, you know, architects are, they're, they're happy people, you know, when they're, when they're behind their computers or their drafting boards and they're designing, they're happy, you know, as long as they have the work. But when you go through the list of potentials that you just went through, I think a lot of light bulbs went off and said, well, even though I'm happy, you know, I have the architecture that I'm doing, maybe it, maybe it could be even better. Yeah. You know, and so if some of those light bulbs sort of triggered something in your mind, I'm speaking to the listeners now, what what's now? What's the next step, Ian? In in sort of um, going from that point, you're maybe we're not happy. Maybe we want to see some more results. Okay, okay. So the next step is realizing that look, um, a lot of architects try and sell themselves on their branding, okay, of who they are as a firm. Now, if you're a big, well-known, international, award-winning, prestigious firm, that could go a long way. But if you are a smaller, perhaps a sole practitioner. Um, working in your local community, well, your branding might not be so important to your clients. So we know that purchasing decisions are based on emotions, and we perhaps know that we want to serve more clients and get higher fees for our work and our time and our ideas. So the next step is to think about, okay, we know what we want out of this, but what is is the client interested in? What's motivating them to go and purchase? Okay, so we, we need to know um, what sort of factors they're interested in. I'll give you some examples of what it might be. So from my gen- general contracting side, and we're competing with other builders to go and build a project, um, look, the project at the end of the day is the same. So what is the client interested in? They're interested in time. They're interested in money. So is there anything we can do as a general contractor to try and speed up that process for them to, to resolve it in a more timely manner. So uh, as an example, you might be working with clients where time is really critical and your service is going to focus on that time element to show them how you can resolve their problem. Um, what I should say is, is that people are typically motivated by, by two things. And it's usually the kind of carrot or stick approach. You know, people are, um, either want to have their pleasure fueled um, or their pain removed. And pain, having your pain removed is actually more powerful than feeding your pleasure, uh, if you know what I mean. So, look, we need to talk to the clients. We need to understand what it is that they are interested in. Is it getting it done more in a timely manner? Is it um, get it done at a lower cost? Or is it perhaps something else? Like, are they really motivated by sustainable design? Are they looking for a zero-carbon project, a carbon-neutral project, a, a carbon po- um, an energy-positive project, a LEED certified, things like that? 
Um, and then once we start to understand how we can ease their pain or fuel their pleasure, we can start to focus on that within our proposal. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So how do, how do we do that? How do we take those emotions and, and you know, bring those emotions into a document? Okay, so um, there's, there's many emotional uh, factors that are influenced by, the, by what we present. So uh, to give you an idea of the sort of things that's going to affect us emotionally within the fee proposal itself is the first and simplest thing is the presentation of it. Okay, how you present your fee proposal will have a big influence on what your client thinks about you and your project. Um, now, typically, we provide fee proposals that are anywhere from, you know, five plus pages long. They're written in a very technical manner. Uh, they usually spend the first third of that document discussing the scope of work to be completed. Somewhere in the middle is the fee, towards the end is the terms and conditions. And look, the client doesn't tend to read the scope. When a client gets your proposal from you, the first question they have is, how much do you charge? So they flick through the proposal and they try and find, you know, what your charges right. are. They're looking for the dollar sign. Yeah. So automatically we're not, we're not giving the client necessarily the information they want. So what we perhaps need to do is simplify that whole proposal process and break it up into smaller chunks. There is a lot of information to give the client, but let's not give it to them all in one chunk. Let's slow that process down a bit and make it simple. And, and the general rule of thumb, I think this is a saying that maybe Albert Einstein once came up with, is that if you can't explain it to a six-year-old or if a six-year-old can't understand it, then it may be too complicated. So our clients have very busy lives. They usually, if, especially if you're in the residential sector, they've usually got jobs, they've got families, other things. They don't want to sift through five pages of heavy technical jargon. So what we want to do is simplify that whole process. I like to start off with what I call a fee letter. It's usually a two or three page document. It quite simply introduces the client. It introduces the project that they're talking about and what they've told you to date. And then it introduces your fees. And I'll, I'll talk more about this in just a minute, but we don't just offer the client one fee. We're going to offer them a range of different fees and a range of different services. Um, and then we basically say that this uh, proposal, these fees and service options are based on our standard contracts. Um, so if any of these are interesting to you, let us know and we can send you a copy of our agreement, our, our design agreement. So like I say, we're just breaking the proposal down into smaller, simpler chunks so that clients can read it more easily, understand it, and start to go through that process with us. So that's one way, pre presentation. Second way, um, that, the second thing that affects us emotionally, uh, what we call anchor numbers. And that, uh, to understand anchor numbers, it's quite a complex subject, so I'll try and squeeze it into, you know, 60 seconds or less. But essentially, when we're making decisions, all sorts of information in our environment will affect the decision that we make. Sometimes it's consciously, sometimes it's subconsciously. Nobody really knows how much anything costs. We believe we know how much things cost because as human beings, we're very good at comparing and contrasting, Okay. So what I mean by that is if I gave you a suitcase and I asked you to tell me how much does that suitcase weigh and, and to be specific about it, you would have quite a challenging time to tell me exactly how much that suitcase weighed. Yeah. Right. But if I gave you another suitcase, then you could very quickly tell me which one was heavier and which one was lighter. That'd be a very simple process for you to do because as a human being, you're very good at comparing and contrasting. Now, look, if I told you the weight of that second suitcase, then you'd be much more confident about telling me the weight of the first suitcase, right? 
Yeah. And that's exactly how prices work. Nobody really knows how much anything should cost. We're very good at comparing. We're very good at contrasting. And that makes us feel like we know how much things should cost. So that's a very, very quick summary of anchoring. So what that means in, in its loosest possible term is when you give your client a fee proposal, and let's say you include a percentage fee, I'm picking a round number. This is not a recommendation, but I'm, I'm just going to pick a number of 8%. Yeah. Your client doesn't know if it's a good fee or if it's a bad fee because it's in isolation and they've never appointed a design professional before. So what do they do? They have to solicit a proposal from one of your competitors. So they've got something to compare it against. And then they can start to feel more comfortable about your fee or perhaps they might feel more uncomfortable about your fee. And it's all because of the comparison process has got less to do with the actual number being asked. Yeah. Um, so what we do is say, look, you can't um, remove that factor. Your client may still choose to solicit proposals from other firms. That still could happen. But instead of just offering the client one fee in isolation, let's start offering them a range of fee options. So instead of just an 8% fee, let's try and find them a 7%, an 8%, and perhaps a 9% service. Because once they start to get options, they stop judging and just focusing on the fee and they start to focus on the differences between the options that you're offering them. And that's a really powerful tool for two reasons. One, when a client starts to look at the differences between the services, they become more informed about the actual service they're choosing from you. So they have a better idea of what you're going to do for each service option. And the second reason that's really important is because it means they're making a more informed decision about the service they choose, a more educated decision. And that's all part of an ethical pricing strategy. Giving your clients informed decisions is really important. And if you don't do that, if you stick with the one fee, one scope approach, then the client doesn't read the scope. If they do appoint you as, as their design professional or their architect, then they automatically assume any design issue that comes up, that's your issue to deal with. <laughs> that's right, yeah. And that's where the scope creep comes from, right? Yeah. But if you've given them options and they've chosen perhaps to buy the 7% instead of the 8 or 9% service, then they know what's included and they know what they've excluded from the scope, but they chose to exclude it. And that's really powerful because they've bought into the scope you're providing. They've had a bigger say in it. And that's going to address the scope group problems that we all suffer from. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. I've always yeah. been been uh, concerned with because I don't do that in my firm. I present one one service, one fee. Yeah. We've also we also combine our proposal and our agreement into one document to try to simplify it, with the goal of trying to make it as simple as possible. Yeah, you know, yeah. very very uh, client friendly language in our agreements. So there's no fear. We're trying to reduce the fear, make it as smooth as possible. But the idea of comparing, I've always been concerned with bringing in multiple options because then they need to make a choice. And that choice sometimes uh, confuses them or, or concerns them and they don't make any choice because there's yeah. too many options. You know, it's, it's, it's safer to not make any choice. Let's take a quick break to say thank you to our platform sponsors here at Entree Architect. We could not be doing this Entree Architect podcast without them. They have been here supporting us week after week after week, 
and I want you to go support them because they support you and vice versa and all that good stuff. So go check them out. It's FreshBooks and RCAT. Do you remember when you started your small firm? It wasn't easy, right? It was no small feat. It took lots of late nights, early mornings, and the occasional all-nighter, maybe. Bottom line, you've been insanely busy ever since launching. So why not make things a little bit easier? Well, our friends at FreshBooks have the solution. FreshBooks invoicing and accounting software is designed specifically for small business owners like us, small firm owners. It's simple, it's intuitive, and it keeps you way more organized than a dusty shoebox filled with crumpy, crumpled receipts. You know how it is, right? You know what you're doing. Create and send professional looking invoices in 30 seconds and then get them paid two times faster. You gotta love that, two times faster with automated online payments. File expenses even quicker and keep them perfectly organized for tax time. And the best part, FreshBooks grows alongside your business. So you'll always have the tools you need when you need them without ever having to learn the ins and outs of accounting. Join the 24 million people who've used FreshBooks. Try it free for 30 days. There's no catch. There's no credit card required. It's free for 30 days. Visit them today at entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks. That's entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks and enter Entree Architect in the How Did You Hear About Us section so they know that we sent you. It's what many of us small firm architects dread. Editing down a manufacturer specification. It's it, it just takes way too much time. You're staring down this 54-page specification and all you need is one product. And maybe, maybe some of its attributes, you just need that one thing. And maybe they have... They have like 10 different products, but it's all in one specification. There's a better way. And it's not throwing that entire specification into your project documents. It's RCAT.com's Spec Wizard. It's built for you, the architect. Spec Wizard is a unique tool that allows you to specify a product in minutes, not hours, minutes, by turning a specification into a simple to use website. Just select the products and options you want to specify and generate a three-part CSI specification in multiple formats. And best of all, it's free. <laughs> Can you believe that? It's free. It requires no registration, no credit card. It's free. Visit entrearchitect.com RCAT. Save that URL to your favorites and then try the better way of specifying products. Spec Wizard by rcat.com. That's entrearchitect.com slash rcat, A-R-C-A-T. FreshBooks and RCAT, thank you for being platform sponsors. Please visit them today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. So what is your guidance on that? Good point, good point. So you have to keep the presentation of your options simple. Um, so what we would do is not write three pages of scope for each, each option and hope that they read it and compare and contrast. What we would recommend is adopting a process we call a, a fee matrix. And a fee matrix is a fancy name for a simple table. And tables are fantastic tools for comparing different service options at different price points and understanding the differences 
um, without spending too much time trying to look at it. Um, and then look, once somebody's shown an interest in your services and your options, they're going to start asking you questions. They're going to open up the dialogue with you and say, look, this service option A here doesn't mention anything about um, a smart home design. Does that mean it's not included? Because I see it's in B and you're like, that's correct. And they're like, well, what is a smart home designer? You can start to talk to them. And all of a sudden, you're demonstrating the value that you bring as a design professional to the project. So that's what we suggest, a fee matrix. And we still use a scope of service, our traditional approach. But what we do is we wait till they've seen the fee matrix and made a choice or started talking to us about it before we introduce the heavier, more detailed documentation. Okay. So it's very important that when you present multiple options that it's very clear and easily understood very quickly what's the difference among those three options and we focus on the differences not the similarities obviously because we want to show them the differences as as you were describing it you know i was thinking you know i I keep looking at computers i want to upgrade my my laptop i'm a a mac guy so i'm going to apple.com i'm looking at at the options and that's exactly what they do they say they've six different you you know i want a and i you know macbook pro and i want it to be a 13 inch macbook pro i go there and there's six different options but exactly. it's very clear and you can click on it and you can compare them and you can see them in a matrix and say okay that's the difference so that's why this this is $500 more than that one and that's why that's one's $1000 more than that one and i could see that in seconds and then i could decide yeah. which one i want and click buy um and so it's the same concept right they're anchoring exactly. too yeah, economists call this um, second and third degree price discrimination, uh, this approach of giving your client options and letting them see the differences and making a choice. The other benefit of the options is that it demonstrates fairness in our approach because we're giving clients the freedom to choose the best service for them rather than saying, we know the best service for you. Mm. Here it is and just giving them one option. Um, so that, that's the sort of second emotional trait we have to understand. The third uh, emotional trait is sometimes captured under the title mental accounting. And what this suggests is that we don't value each dollar in the same way. As human beings, we place different weights or different values to dollars depending on how we earn the money or perhaps its intended purpose. So as an example, um, your regular paycheck, dollars from your regular paycheck, will typically be spent very differently to dollars you get from a bonus uh, from work or perhaps from a tax refund. Typically, this this bonus money or tax refund money will be spent um, on luxury items and things that we enjoy. We spend it differently. It's it's still our own money. It's still every dollar is still worth a dollar, but how we mentally frame that, the value of that is different, and so we'll spend it differently. Um, so what that means in, in terms of fee proposals is that we need to understand that there's emotional biases towards different types of fees. So it helps us to try and group and separate different types of fees. And an obvious example of how to do that is your design fee and your expense uh, costs, yeah, to separate those two costs rather than roll them all into one just to break them out. Um, and then once again, when it comes to these different costs, your design fee, you're going to offer options and then the expense costs, you can offer options as well because uh, nowadays with modern technology, we don't have to uh, always give the client a physical set of every documentation, every change that we make for them. They could have a digital copy of it, a uh, PDF or something of that nature, helping to reduce our printing costs and also helping to reduce them. But some clients might want to have a 3D fly-through or a virtual reality. So 
there's different ways we can present a design to the client. And by giving them options of how they would like to receive it, we're obviously going to have different price points associated with that. And they get to make an informed decision about which sort of service they want and thus demonstrating value in our approach. So that's a third way. Um, I've got two more if you've got time. Yeah, I talk yeah. About I'm, I'm having a good time here. So let's keep going. Okay. Um, next thing is, is the subject of fairness. Um, and that is that as human beings, we inevitably want to work with people. We want to, uh, socialize with people who we believe are fair. Yeah. Okay. Um, now fairness is a very funny thing because, uh, different people sort of might see fairness in slightly different ways. Um, but research shows that we will actually give up financial gain. We will take less financial reward to work with clients that we perceive as being fairer in their approach to business than other clients and vice versa. So once again, by giving our clients options, um, by giving them the freedom to choose a service and understand the differences in how we can help them, we're demonstrating fairness. So that's going to help the client warm up to us as a service provider and perhaps want to work with us as opposed to our competition who aren't demonstrating as much fairness because they're just giving the one fee and the one service option. Um, and then the, the final um, approach is what we call uh, losses and gains. And that's simply the fact that as human beings, we're motivated by losses far more than we are gains. Um, and a little example of how that works is if we do a, a coin toss. And if I said to you, look, um, you know, heads or tails, what, what would you prefer? But by the way, if you get it wrong, if you choose the wrong one, you're going to lose $100, right? Yeah. But if I said, if you get it right, how much would you have to win in order to take this bet, to make this gamble? Would you be happy to get $100 if you, or would you want more to be prepared to take the gamble? Yeah. Does that make sense? So, so you're flipping a coin. If you lose, you're going to lose a hundred. Yeah. How much do you have to win in order to take that risk of losing the 100? Yeah. That's the yeah. question. Yeah. And the research shows that most people want to get about $200 so on double, the win. Double your win. They want to double it in order to take the bet. Yeah. But what this proves is that losses hurt a lot more than gains reward, right? So what does that mean to us as architects and design professionals? Well, simply, uh, the simple process of this is that we've got to start framing the losses in the services that we're offering uh, to the client so that they understand what they may be missing out on when they, certain, they choose certain things. So what I mean by that is by giving the client options and giving them different choices to make and getting them more involved in the actual services that we provide, if they choose a lower price option, then they'll be able to see what they're missing out on, which is going to encourage them to want to buy a better, bigger version, uh, a more advanced service from you. So to give you an example of how that works, um, some clients might be extremely concerned, let's say residential clients, about the risk this project holds. You know, what is it going to cost? How long is it going to take? Um, are the costs going to be fixed? That sort of thing. So you could give the client an opportunity to appoint you directly as the architect and say, look, there's another group of consultants and builders that you need to appoint in order to get this work completed. And you'll have to manage that process. And it can be quite stressful if you don't have the skill set, if you're not in the industry. So look, we offer, also offer a design build service that you may want to consider. It's a different price point because we take all the risk, but we give you one point of contact, one point of responsibility, but it is a higher fee. 
And here's the difference between those two services. You then present them to the client and let them choose. And once again, all of a sudden, they're no longer just looking at the fee. They're also looking at the service and they're looking at what they gain if they pay more or what they have to give up if they pay less. And quite often, I would say at least uh, 50% of the time, you'll see clients choose a more expensive, more advanced, a higher level of service because they simply don't want to miss out on those advanced services. And you'll probably notice this in your own purchasing behavior when you buy a computer, when you buy a car, uh, airline tickets, um, health insurance, uh, all these sorts of things. You're probably provided with options. And you may have noticed that you didn't go for the most affordable car. You upgraded in some way. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, you usually sort of land in the middle. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So those are five of perhaps the most common traits in how emotions play out in the fee proposal arena. Very, very interesting. Um, one, one last question before we wrap things up. I hear all the time in terms of, you know, from sales consultants that you should never present uh, your fee proposal through an email or through a letter, that you should do it in person. What is your thought on that? Is it, does it matter? Um, look, personally, I think you have to give the client what they want to a large degree. So what is it they're interested in? If a client isn't yet ready to meet with me for whatever reason, um, and they would prefer to have an email to start with, then that's the method I would use. Um, if I could choose the process, then perhaps sitting down with them is as long as I'm a charismatic person. Um, <laughs> that's a very know, good uh, point. I, I would perhaps want to sit down with them um, and go through that process. And that's also something uh, we've done a lot of sort of research on and, and looked at is that whole, uh, we call it the negotiation process, but just sitting down with the client from day one um, and how we can address that more effectively. Because typically in our industry, the first thing we do, client calls us up, we say, we'd love to be involved. When can we come and meet with you? And all of a sudden we're on the back foot. We're given our time, our, our ideas, uh, our energy, our effort away for free, essentially. And, and clients don't value us when we do that. So what we've got to do is start, change that whole process to start with. Um, so so what do you, what do you, cause that is typically what, what architects will do. They'll yeah. have that initial, that, that initial meeting. Um, yeah. and so you're saying that we shouldn't do that. There's a step before that. We, we don't tell anyone exactly what they should and shouldn't do. So right. if you yeah. like, yeah. That, if you like that approach and it's working for you, you're happy with the results, maybe you're very charismatic and you meet clients free of charge, but you win enough work that it's yeah. working for you, then, you know, you probably don't need to change. But what we find is a lot of design professionals meet clients. They go out there thinking it's going to be a one hour meeting. It turns into a four hour session. They give away ideas. They give away answers to a lot of questions. And then they go back to the office and they don't win the work. Um, and if you're a sole practitioner, time is very important and you may not be able to maintain this if you're constantly meeting people and not getting paid for it. So what we would recommend is changing that around instead of just start starting the service by offering to meet with them, start that relationship by having that initial phone call, opening up the dialogue, asking them some interesting questions to find out what they're doing and if you are a good match and then present to them two or maybe three different service options on how you can help them achieve their goal. So usually the first goal that design, you know, residential design clients have typically is, is what can they build, how long is it going to take, and how much may it cost to build something of that nature. Yeah. So we're going to solve that problem for them. We're going to give some options of how we can do that. So option one is 
we're going to say to them, look, we have completed a number of similar residential projects to the one you've described. If you would like, you can come to our office. We could sit down. We could talk about your ideas, aspirations, mean methods, processes, costs, that sort of thing. And we can show you some of our portfolios of completed projects. And look, there's absolutely no fee associated with that service if you'd like to take the time to come meet with us. But that's option one. We don't stop there because we don't know if they're perhaps ready to make a financial commitment to us. We don't know that. They probably don't know that if we're honest. So what we're going to do is give them option two. I'm going to say, look, we could come and meet with you. We could walk the site. We can give you our ideas, our recommendations. Um, we could talk about means, methods, costs, that sort of thing. We could bring along a portfolio of completed projects. If you have time, we could go through it with you. And we could ask for a small nominal fee for that service. But we don't have to stop there. We could, in fact, go to the local planning department, do some research on their project, find out what they can build, how long it, um, how big it can be and where we can position it, and then capture that information, put it in a written report, something like a feasibility study or a pre-designed service report, and then give that report to the client and then perhaps ask for a slightly higher fee for that service. And then we don't tell them what to do. We give them the options. So if they're not ready for financial commitment, they can still come and meet with us free of charge, no problem. If they are ready for a financial commitment, they want to get that information, well, they can make that commitment to you and you can go ahead and do that. But it puts the power in the client's claw to make a choice. And look, if you present those options to the client and the client gets uncomfortable and they get worried and you're thinking, look, I've got nothing going on. I would rather go and meet them free of charge and try and drum up some work than do nothing and just sit in my office. So what you would do is present those options and then say to the client, look, I do have a project in the same neighborhood as the site that you're talking about. I am going to be over there on Wednesday of next week at a site meeting. I could come by your site after that meeting and meet with you. We could talk about your ideas, aspirations, timeframes, costs, so forth. I can bring along a portfolio of completed work. We can look for it. And look, on this occasion, because I'm already in the neighborhood, there's absolutely no charge associated with that service. So in that instance, we're framing our value as a design professional and we're framing the cost associated with that. And then we're removing of that cost for a personal reason. So we're giving them a personal gift. And that way, their approach to us um, is going to be far more better than if we just start the relationship by offering to give our time, effort, and ideas away for free. Okay. And look, the other thing is if your client turns around and, and doesn't want any of the above, they don't want the free service, they don't want to pay service. Well, look, it might act as a fantastic filtering mechanism for yeah. you. And if you're a sole practitioner, you're going to need filtering mechanisms. So, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's a great, that's a great way to filter. You know, that's, yeah. if, if yeah. somebody's not willing to pay for, you know, an hour long meeting that they're going to gain information, then it's, it, they're probably not going to be very willing to pay for a higher service as well. Exactly. And if you are going to charge for your time, make sure you're organized. Don't just show up at the client's project or have a coffee with them, talk through things and then leave and expect to be paid for your time. If you're going to be paid genuinely, you have to provide something useful and it helps if it's in a written format um, so that they feel like they've got something of use for your time. Okay. So bear that in mind if you are going to charge for your time. Yeah, this is so such. This is going to be a very popular episode, Ian. I could tell you Thank right you. now, there's full of value here. So I, I really appreciate your time. Uh, before we wrap up, I want to ask you the one question that I ask everybody, and I and I and I suspect that it might have to do something with fees. <laughs> the question <laughs> is, what is one thing that a small firm architect could do today to build a better business for tomorrow? 
The one thing we would recommend is taking a look at the service you currently offer and say, ask yourself the question of what are we not offering and could provide because that will help you establish a second fee and service option for your proposal and having two options for the client to choose from is going to do a fantastic job at converting more clients to paid clients and also it's going to help you increase your fee levels so that would be my one recommendation to start with very very good you recommend three right if in a perfect world you're you're shooting for three i just want to clarify that so people people understand that is it to be honest if we look at the research yeah one of the best selling vehicles of all time probably the best selling vehicle of all time is the ford f-150 pickup truck um and there was a time when they had about 20 different versions of that truck um so if you look at the research it seems like the more options there are potentially the more clients you can cater to so uh, the more people are going to say yes but look we all have a limited amount of time yeah um resources so three is a good one to shoot for it is challenging to get three so I would recommend if you've never done it before, start with two, mm-hmm. try it out, see how your clients like it, see how they respond to it, but just start with two to keep it simple. Very, very good. Ian, this has been a really, really interesting conversation. Uh, if anybody wants to go check out what Ian is doing over at Blue Turtle, it's Blue Turtle MC. I, is it marketing? Is it the M is marketing? It's that is that management. 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 Consulting. Management consulting. Okay. BlueTurtleMC.com. So go there, BlueTurtleMC.com. It's everything that Ian's doing, uh, all the products they're offering, the the consulting that they do. So BlueTurtleMC.com. On LinkedIn, we're just going to put that link in the show notes. He's on LinkedIn. Go check out Ian. You can go to the show notes. The show notes are EntreeArchitect.com slash episode 252, 252. Uh, entrearchitect.com slash episode 252. Ian, before we wrap up, is there anything else that you want to talk about in terms of maybe some of the offerings that you're doing, maybe a workshop or something that you have in the future? Yeah, there's one thing I'd like to mention, and that is that if you're not currently addressing emotional criteria of your clients in your fee proposal, then we are offering this March a fee proposal workshop. It's a one-day workshop. We're offering it in 16 different cities around the United States throughout March. Uh, if you'd like to learn more, simply go to fee proposal workshop, uh, Google that, and we will come up and you'll see the dates, you'll see the venues, you'll see the schedule for the day. There's two presenters. I am one of the presenters. The other one is my colleague, Alexandra Harrison who is a registered architect. She is a specialist in design fee psychology and pricing of design services. She also worked at Foster and Partners. She's also run her own practice. Um, so yeah, please check it out. Let us know if you have any questions. Yeah, and we'll put a link to that on the show notes as well. So entrearchitect.com slash episode 252. We'll have everything that we're talking about here and a direct link to that workshop if anybody wants to go check out that. Ian, this was a really good conversation. I love talking about fees, one of my favorite subjects as well. Um, lots of interesting things that I haven't thought about in the past. And so uh, I appreciate you for sharing your knowledge and for being here with me today on Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for having me. Oh, I think this is going to be a popular one. This is going to be a popular one. 
proposals and fee proposals is such a hot topic. Whenever we mention them over at the Facebook group at entrearchitect.com slash group, that's a private group only for architects. Every time we talk about fees, the, the, the group blows up. Everybody has, a, has an opinion. Everybody wants to learn more. This is a topic that you want to share with your friends. This is entrearchitect.com slash episode 252. Please share that with every architect you know. I think this is an episode that they should have. And I think that they that what Ian shared with us today will make you sort of think about your next proposal a little bit differently. So please go share it, entrearchitect.com slash episode 252. And Entree Architect membership. Go check it out at entrearchitect.com. A new masterclass expert training webinar every month comes right to your inbox. The invitation, you click on that, you register, you are in. You can check it out every month, a new webinar training session and access the entire archive of trainings. There's almost 40 of them now covering topics in business, leadership, and life. Everything you need to succeed as a small firm architect. Access to all our resources, including hybrid proposal and foundations documents. You've heard of them. That's more than 50 business forms and templates and checklists and a a course to show you how to do our hybrid proposal, how it's put together, how you can put together your owner architect agreement that works. Access all our digital courses, including Get Focused, our exclusively designed Entree Architect productivity course for architects, and an invitation to join our private membership membership forum powered by Slack. You get all of that training, resources, and a private community just for small firm architects. That is Entree Architect membership, and it's less than 50 bucks a month. But today, if you join entrearchitect.com, just go there, entrearchitect.com, you can join for free, free for 30 days. You can go in there, check it out, check it. You can do a, a masterclass. You can go check out all the the resources, you can download whatever you want. It's all there for free for 30 days. After 30 days, it's $47 a month. Very few people leave once they come in because it is a massive value and you will build a better business. We will show you how every month, how to build a better business. So gain full access today for free for 30 days at entrearchitect.com. Go do that right now. You won't regret it. My name is Mark R. LePage, and I am an entrepreneur architect, and I encourage you to go build a better business because that is how you're going to be a better architect. Love, learn, share. Thank you for listening. Have a great week. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, 
stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like, us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.